Hello and welcome to the American Male Spouse Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Smith. And if you saw the length of this and still clicked on the episode, allow me to say thank you. I promise you that I did try to cut this to under an hour, but this week and next, I'm sharing stories of infertility and the processes of IVF and adoption. And the process is long and so are the episodes. (laughs) Um, I just feel that there's so much light to be shed and we just talked about so many awesome things that it is a long one and I hope you'll hang in there with me. I promise it's worth it. This week I had the pleasure of talking to Jenna Huber whose husband flies helicopters for the Navy and Jenna was generous to share their struggle with both endometriosis and male factor infertility and the IVF journey that led them to their children. Whether or not you have been impacted by infertility personally, we also discuss ways to support someone that's going through the process, and we hit a bit on what to do, what not to do, and just the best ways to care for someone that's walking on that path right now. Those of you who know me personally know that our family has been impacted by infertility, and it is a topic that is near to my heart. I'm incredibly thankful to Jenna for being so open about their process, and I learned so much, and I know you will too. So let's get started. My name is Jenna Huber. I am born and mostly raised uh, in Texas, in Houston specifically, and then went to Texas A&M, and that's where I met my husband, Clay, and he was born and raised in the Dallas area that we met there. He actually was prior enlisted, so he was like kind of that he was like an older guy he started when he was 23 at A&M so he was like this weird older guy that everyone was like why is he still here (laughs) (laughs) kind of like an enigma so so we met there and off we went he he graduated a year ahead of me so he graduated in 2012 and started the flight school thing I stayed back finished my degree and then stayed and worked in Houston for a year so we did long distance for a while and then finally married and moved around and now we're in Florida. We have two little boys. Henry is our oldest and he is almost three, which is crazy. And then Connor, the baby, just turned eight months old this week actually, which is like even crazier to me. I don't know if it's like the COVID time warp or just second born and so you just like don't pay as much attention to him. But I'm like, I feel like I just gave birth to you last week. You I don't know, know, and you're right, though, because it's like there's not a lot of time is passing, but not a lot is happening. So, yeah. <laughs> so I can totally I remember, get that. Yeah, and I remember with, with Henry, the oldest, you know, you're like, I had nothing else to do but pay attention to him. I'm a stay-at-home yeah. mom. Right, so, right. Um, so I was just like so all in with him. And I don't know, like with Connor, for instance, he was crawling across the floor one day and I looked at my husband I was like Clay is he crawling he's like yeah I'm crawling the other day and I was like wait (laughs) like when did he start I don't know just stuff like that so anyways yeah that's that's where we're at and so your husband is a uh, navy pilot yes yeah we're navy so I know most of the episodes I've listened to have been air force y'all are air force correct yes we to start getting just different voices and learn about different parts of the military and different yeah so it's been super interesting to hear the air force experience because it is it's quite different actually i wasn't expecting 
it to be so different. I mean, there's obviously big similarities, but just the different community. What have you, what has struck you as some of the big differences? Um, the deployment cycles and also like just what deployment is like for y'all. Like our guys go out on ships, so it's totally mm. different. You mm. know, they're not land-based and for, for my experience specifically, my husband's always been with an expeditionary squadron. So they go in small, like the whole squadron doesn't go together. There, there is that in the Navy for sure. But our, when we were on a deployment, he went and they went in like small groups called detachments. So like the whole squadron didn't pick up and leave all at once. It was just like, you know, eight pilots and two helicopters basically would go out with, with the ship. So it's just different, but like yeah. every... Every branch has like a crazy set of acronyms that they use that, you know, I still don't know half of the AV acronym. I mean, it's always like, I'm always happy to like Google or ask my husband something, (laughs) but everyone has like a totally different set of acronyms, a a different vocabulary. Yes. And it's so true. And that's something that I I try to be conscious of when people I'm speaking with are using them to clarify. And I know I do a terrible job because they don't even feel like acronyms to me because it's like. Once, oh. once you're in it, and certain ones especially, TDY, PCS, whatever, those are things. Right, exactly. Like, I think I already said PCS. And right. Know. Yeah. <laughs> Which for anyone listening means basically a move in the military. But yeah, yeah. For, for us, that's just sort of like, like a verb, so. Yeah. Um, well, and then someone will ask you to clarify, and you're like, I actually don't know what it stands for. <laughs> yeah. like, My mom asked me what a TDY stood for the other day, and I was like, Temporary duty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, I don't know what the why is actually. So I know. That's actually really interesting though about the deployment. So did do you feel like because for us, the deployments tend to really be from the spouse side of things, that's where a lot of those bonds are formed because you kind of yeah. you know, the spousal support system from your husband is taken away from kind of and from yeah. everyone at the same time. So did you, do you feel that same camaraderie or how does that, how did that feel oh, for you? Yes. Yeah, yes and no. So it totally depends. Like I, I, like I said, some, we're in the helicopter community. My husband flies helicopters. And with that, you can either be with an expeditionary squadron, which is like what we were with, where they go out in small groups, or you can be with an air wing squadron, which the whole squadron does pick up and move on to the aircraft carrier and goes out together. And certainly in those squadrons, I think the spouse camaraderie within every squadron has like a spouse's club or a spouse's group. And I think the camaraderie there with the, with the air wing squadrons, I've heard from friends that have been part of those, that it is that experience for sure. Like super bonding, get together all the time. They all support one another and it's phenomenal with us, with our first squadron, we did two, he did two deployments that tour. So And it totally just depends. So like the first one, for instance, like I said, it's usually like six to eight pilots, I want to say, that go out on a debt and they take two helicopters and a handful of maintainers and like air crewmen. And so the the first deployment he did, his OIC was married and had a wife and a daughter. Can you you define OIC for me? No, that's okay. (laughs) I'm better at noticing these when they're ones that I don't know. Yes, officer in charge. So that's okay. like the, he's like the little, the boss, basically like the, the stand-in CEO of this small group of people that go out. 
got it. Um, sorry, CEO, commanding officer. <laughs> right. So, like, he's the boss. He's the boss. So my husband's boss for that deployment was married and had a wife, and then I was the only other spouse on that oh, detachment. Wow. So her and I, um, and there's there's still a spouses club that we're involved in, but just we were the only ones whose husbands were gone at that time. Okay. And thank God, I mean, she is still a very dear friend of mine. She was such an amazing mentor. They had, he was further along in his career, obviously. So they had been around the block, but she just was not one of those people. You know, I don't know if you've experienced this as well, but some women or men, I guess, I don't know, can tend to like wear their husband's rank as a status symbol. Mm -hmm. They just aren't as open to like, this was, we were babies in the Navy. Like we, this was our first, first active duty, like deploying tour out of flight school. So you know, we were like little, little newborns. And <laughs> she, just, she took such good care of me. And she was so humble and open with like, her struggles with dealing with deployment and like the pressure it put on her marriage. And so for me, it being my first experience that just, yeah, she was wonderful. She made it feel like totally normal for me to have all of the stress and whatever that we That's were dealing great. with. great. And I think especially to hear it from somebody who's been around the block to know that, hey, it's it's normal for everyone in, in any position. This isn't just like, oh, hey, you're new and you mm-hmm. don't, you're not tough enough for this yet or something. Like, no, it's always hard. It always stinks. Yeah. Which is like, in some ways, it's a little discouraging because I was like, wait, you have <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't worry, don't worry, it never gets better. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, she totally could have been the opposite, like you said, and been like, oh, this is your first deployment, like, mm-hmm. suck it up. Or mm-hmm. the worst, when people say, oh, this is what you signed up for, I'm like, mm-hmm. she yeah. was not like that. No. Not at not all. So she was wonderful. So that was a great experience. His second deployment, I was the only spouse. Oh my god. None of the other guys that went out on that deployment were married. Wow. So that one was a little harder, but yeah. we were further along in that tour by then. And we had built, like, we struck lightning. That was, we were in Hawaii at that time. Okay. And we had really just like, it was lightning in a bottle there. The family that we created for ourselves there between like some other couples that we just got really close with. And so even though their husbands weren't deployed at the same time, I still had a phenomenal support system. Yeah. It actually kind of was nice that their husbands weren't deployed because I would call their husbands over to like do my honeydew. Projects. Right. They can mow the lawn and all that good stuff. Yeah. So where all have you been then? I know you said Hawaii and obviously you're from Texas. Yeah. So like I said, we started off in College Station, Texas. Mm-hmm. And then he went off to do like the Navy flight school circuit, which is basically they move every four to six months just depending on how quickly they're getting through curriculum. And so they start in Pensacola, Florida. And then from there, he went to Corpus Christi, Texas, and then back to Florida to Milton, which is just north of Mm -hmm. Pensacola in Whiting, um, or at Whiting Field. And then from there to San Diego, California, for like the very last phase of um, just getting trained in like his specific aircraft, the helicopter. And so when he was in San Diego, that's when we got married, and I technically moved out to San Diego with him, but I was doing um, IT consulting at the time, so actually I was, um, you know, 4 a.m. on a flight from San Diego back to Houston. I would work my job in Houston, 
Monday through Thursday, fly oh, back wow. to San Diego Thursday evening, work from home on Friday, you know, do my laundry and repack my suitcase and repeat on Monday. So wow. how long did you do that for? That we did for six months. Oh, wow. I did. Yeah. So I say we lived, I lived in San Diego, but I really was only visiting on the weekend. Right, right. At least it's a fantastic place to visit. Yeah. So it was, it was really fun. We had, we had obviously no kids at that point. We lived downtown in a little walk up and our right. life just revolved around like, oh, where do we want to walk for brunch today? Or yes. where we, for drink and dinner tonight. It was, it was a really fun time. And then from there, we moved to Hawaii in November of 2014. Okay. Did three years in Hawaii and then came to Jacksonville. We've been in Jacksonville, Florida now for two and a half years, coming up on three years, and we are due for a move here in the spring in about six months, but we do not know where we're going yet. We have okay. no orders. Okay. We just know that. <laughs> Standard. Kind of switching gears a little bit, which I know you know, we kind of talked about this previously, but you have mentioned that you guys dealt with infertility. And do you mind telling me a little bit more about what that experience was like for you? No, not at all. So I guess starting way back, I was diagnosed with endometriosis at a really young age, like okay. probably well, I started, I mean, okay, I'll just preface this. There may be some TMI, but you can't talk about infertility without talking about <laughs> You're right. Yep. The reproductive system, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, I started, I got my period really young and like really hardcore heavy. And it just, it didn't seem right. And my mom was not hesitant at all about taking me in to see a gynecologist because it just didn't seem normal. Mm -hmm. um, it actually took, that was at age 10 or 11 and then it actually took until I was 15 for a doctor to like take it seriously and oh, wow. kind of take a deeper look and um at, so at 15 finally a doctor we found a doctor and that doctor told us you know I think this is endometriosis honestly and, and I think we need to put her on birth control okay. um which kudos to my mom because I'm sure it's hard for a mom to like hear the word birth control in reference to your 15 year old daughter because there's you know, we think of birth control as, as being a contraceptive. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And no one wants to think their 15 year old daughter needs birth control. Mm -hmm. But um, no, it was really just so to treat endometriosis, you have two options. You can either do surgery or you can use this combination of sort of hormonal therapies that suppress the growth of of that tissue and I wound up on a combination of both of those things but okay. for anyone who doesn't know endometriosis is the so the lining of your uterus is called your endometrium and endometriosis is where that particular tissue is found elsewhere in your body not inside of your uterus or in addition to being inside your uterus so mm. every month in response to your body's natural hormone cycle the same way you would you know, shed that lining and that's what your period is, that anywhere that tissue is in your body, it's also shedding and bleeding and just creating kind of like open wounds and, and areas of inflammation. So it can be mm. very painful and it can be anywhere in your body. It's, I think in most people, like certainly in my case, it was all kind of in my abdominal and pelvic cavity, but you know, I've heard stories and read of 
people who have it in their lungs or even oh in God. their brain tissue. Like, oh. it's just crazy. So yeah. it's a very, it's not that uncommon. I want to say like one in 10 women mm-hmm. nowadays suffer from it, but it's super misunderstood or just yes. not understood. I would agree because even my very limited familiarity with it, what you just explained to me is not exactly how I had understood it, which thank you for explaining, but it's definitely, I think a term everybody's heard, but I don't think that the understanding is really there for people who, most people who aren't directly affected by it. And even people who are diagnosed, even doctors who treat it don't, I mean, I'll get Mm -hmm. into it, but I went through several doctors before I finally on my fourth surgery for it had improvement. I mean, it took oh my a really gosh. Long. it's just not, it's just not understood. Um, so yeah. So I wound up on birth control for really early on and then kind of for, you know, 10 years, basically I was doing some sort of combination of hormonal therapies and then that would keep it under control for a while, but then eventually my symptoms would get so bad and I was in so much pain and the the hormones just weren't cutting it. And I would wind up, I would go in for a surgery. They would do as much as they could. And so when they go in for surgery, they, it's usually just poke holes surgery. Like they don't cut you hip to hip or anything. They go Mm -hmm. in with, um, it's a laparoscopy. So they go in with a camera and a laser and they, they, look for all the patches where it is and, and they kind of burn the surface of it. Those are the types of surgeries that I was having. They just okay. like would burn the surface of the tissue wherever they saw it. And then you'd heal up, you'd get back on your hormones. That would last another like two or three years. And then it would be time for another surgery. It would creep back up. Okay. So I did that. And all the while knowing that there was a strong link between endometriosis and infertility. Right knew from a very early age that the likelihood that we were going to have, I mean, I didn't know my husband at the time, obviously, but the likelihood that when I was ready to become a mother, Mm -hmm. that it might be tough. It was always in the back of my mind, Okay, but I wasn't that upset about it at that time. So I wasn't trying to get pregnant. You know, it's never upsetting until it's upsetting. Right. So yeah. So about 10 years later, I would say was my husband and I were married. We, it wasn't until we moved to Hawaii. And we kind of, we, we were settled there. We were going to be there for three years. So we thought, okay, now's the time. We were going to do the, the no try, try, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So like I said, treatment for endometriosis would be essentially birth control. And there's all different, you know, you can do Lupron shots or there's, there's various different protocols to be on, but essentially you can't get pregnant while treating your endometriosis. So okay. just those two, those two don't go hand in hand at all. So mm-hmm. The first step for us to even get started on on trying to build our family would be for me to get off of all of my therapies and just see what happened, mm. um, which was terrifying because I hadn't I hadn't been unmedicated for it since I was 15, so for for 10 years at this point. Right. So we did that. I stopped taking everything, and this was like probably. It was January of 2015. So we had just moved to Hawaii and gotten settled. Okay. Um, so January 2015, I got off of everything and we were just going to see what happens. And that lasted about a month, like maybe six weeks before I was, I was basically crippled, like oh. bedridden. I was so miserable in so much pain. Like it was not, I couldn't even imagine 
getting pre- I just I, I I couldn't think of anything except how much pain I was in. It oh was it was bad. And so I was like, there's gotta be another way. Like I can't live like this and I can't get pregnant feeling this way. Like right. it's just it, this isn't right. I just knew it wasn't right. Mm-hmm. So I started researching doctors there in Hawaii and I met with a couple of them and they were all kind of like, well, you know, we can do the same surgery you've already had three times, but you know, if it hasn't worked before, it's probably not going to work. Like you're just going to have to keep having this surgery every three years, you know, indefinitely, Mm -hmm. basically, which Mm -hmm. I didn't like that answer. Yeah. (laughs) Not pumped about that. And so I did a little more research and actually wound up at the center for endometriosis care, which is in Atlanta, Georgia. So I contacted them and this surgeon in particular, he's kind of the pioneer of a, a different surgical method where instead of just lazing the surface of the tissue, he, they do a complete excision. So he cuts down into the underlying tissue mm-hmm. until he gets clean margin, kind of like you would for skin cancer, I guess. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he just, it takes the root of the tissue away. Okay. And, and in his practice of doing this, he has very little, if any, um, recurrence of disease after, oh, after wow. the surgery. So I was okay. super hopeful. I was like, okay, this might be like the last surgery I get, you know, uh-huh. which was really exciting. So contacted them. I spoke with them on the phone and sent, you know, all of my surgical history and all of my records and they agreed to take me on as a patient. And so in April of 2015, I, my husband and I got on a plane and we flew 12 hours mm-hmm. to Georgia to have surgery with this practice and then recovered and 12 hours back and um, we're super excited. And, and that surgeon, he said, you know, obviously wait until you're healed and recovered and then, you know, give it three to six months and and I bet you'll be pregnant. You, everything looks really good. Um, Clean as a whistle in there. Everything's healthy. Like it's, you should have no problems. And so we, we did, we tried that summer and we were coming up at that point we were coming up on the beginning of his first deployment okay so we kind of had we really only had like five months i would say because my surgery was in well maybe six months my surgery was in april and then he was set to leave in november for just like the first exercise and then they were going to come home for the holidays and then like deploy deploy in january so we had from like april until november basically a good solid trying right. and nothing happened so fine so it got to like down to the wire I wasn't in any pain anymore like I felt great and for the first time in my life felt like healthy which was amazing yeah. in and of itself you know it was one of those things like you didn't realize how sick you were until you right. didn't have it anymore and then I was like sure. oh my god I was I was miserable for uh-huh. for 10 years like that was rough but um did you, so after having that surgery, did you recognize that were you in more pain, even when you were being treated? Do you think you were in more pain than you had realized? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Wow. Absolutely. I mean, there was never a time where I wasn't like popping Advil like candy, even on my hormone oh, therapies. Wow. It just, it never fully went away. Okay. It was just, it made it tolerable. Okay. Jeez, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah but you know what? You did. I just was so, I didn't even know it was, like I said, until I didn't right. experience it, I didn't even know it That's was a true. thing. So I, mm-hmm. I 
had a happy life. I didn't live in misery or anything. Sure, but sure, yeah. Once it was gone, I was like, oh, wow, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, we, we did the old traditional trying it out mm-hmm. for several months, and nothing happened, and we just, so I decided, you know, and that, my surgeon had told me, he said, if, if after several months, nothing's happening, maybe go see a fertility specialist, just because with your history, you, you probably will need some help if yeah. it doesn't happen on your own in a few months, so sure. with, like, proper timing and all of that, you know, so right. we went in, we got a consult with a fertility doctor there in Hawaii, and did some tests, and mine came back, you know, not perfect. I had my ovarian reserve was diminished for my age, which we expected. Some of my hormone levels were a little wonky, which is to be expected because I had been, you know, messing with that for so long. But we found out my husband in his testing was basically sterile. Oh, wow. Which was just like devastating. Sure. It was... we just totally weren't expecting that. Right. I was going to say, you knew going in that you maybe had an uphill climb and you can. Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we, and I don't remember like the specifics of it. And I, I'll also say he's, he bless him is like, so not shy about this topic mm-hmm. and he'll, he is not ashamed of it or anything, but. Good for him because has- I think that there's as much as I think infertility in general progress is fortunately for all of us being made in terms of it being less of a stigma. I think that yeah. from the male perspective, there's, they're a lot further behind with that. I think Definitely. that there's still so much shame around it, which is heartbreaking and unnecessary. Yeah. But Yeah. And I kind of expected some of that from him. And I was, I was genuinely surprised and so proud of him that he, like, even from day one of getting this information, he mm-hmm. He has never like seemed bothered by it. That's Other than that, it's down a really hard road, obviously. Sure. But he's right. never and then we found out it was even more out of his control because that sent him, he was able to get into a urologist. they sent him to a urologist just to have more testing done to just see. So he went through he kind of ran the gamut. He had ultrasounds and blood work and all this to try to identify a cause. And there okay. was nothing. Like his mm-hmm. anatomy was normal his hormones were Mm -hmm. all perfectly normal there was absolutely no explanation as to why Hmm. he just there was just no reason um the only reason we've ever been given which was just kind of like a hypothesis on our fertility specialist part was he has had just a ton a ton of exposure exposure to radiation in his career Mm -hmm. and we've actually just found out recently in the last like month that this problem is really common in military communities, specifically in the aviation community. Interesting. And actually when he was enlisted prior to coming to Texas A&M, he was a nuclear mechanic on submarines. So as he described, he was like working in the engine room, straddling a pipe that was transporting, you know, radioactive material. (laughs) So that's probably not, probably not great for, you know, your reproductive system. Right, right. If they say, like, laptops aren't great, that's probably... (laughs) 
yeah. And like, how the hell is he rides around on like a super powerful radar that he just like sits on top of? So yeah, right. I mean, and that's the kind of thing that's like that's a a deep dive for someday, but it is wildly unsettling, and unfortunately, I think so unsettling that most of us just look away. But the number of whether it's being sterile or different types of cancers, all these different things that there are some alarming trends that don't seem to be terribly researched. Well, and actually, the Naval Aviator spouses have a Facebook group, and one of the spouses on there has posted recently, she is lobbying Senate. She's working with Senator Feinstein, and uh, I forget which other senator, but they are lobbying Senate to to do that investigation, um, specifically specifically for cancer. They're looking at cancer incidents in military communities in comparison to the general population and seeing, you know, is there a higher incidence of cancer yeah. because her husband was diagnosed. They, they had male factor infertility and then her husband was later diagnosed with testicular cancer with no predisposing mm-hmm. issues whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And anyways, yeah, so, so yes, so he had been to the urologist. There was no reason. And so that left us with we had to do like IVF, not even traditional IVF, but like IVF with ICSI, which is like the hardcore kind, um, that would be our only option. So, so in the, in the fertility world, in terms of like assisted reproduction, there's, it's kind of like a spectrum. So on the lowest end of the spectrum, there's a drug called Clomid, which I refer to as like the gateway fertility drug. Yes. (laughs) Like everyone starts on Clomid. Yep. Um, then you do like Clomid and timed intercourse at home. And if that doesn't work, then you maybe do Clomid with an IUI, which is like the turkey baster. Right. <laughs> That's um, how I always describe it too. <laughs> There's no more glamorous way to explain an IUI. <laughs> There's nothing glamorous about any of it. No. So yeah, so then if that doesn't work, maybe you move on to injectable hormones to try and further control ovulation and with an IUI. And then if mm-hmm. that doesn't work, maybe from there you go on to traditional IVF, which is they you do the injectables, they retrieve your eggs um, in a surgery, and then they mix those in a Petri dish with your husband's sperm or your partner's sperm, whoever, and then um, let fertilization take place naturally. And then the furthest on the other end of the spectrum would be IVF with ICSI, which is they do the same egg retrieval process to get the eggs from the woman, but then instead of letting fertilization take place naturally, they actually take a tiny needle and inject each individual egg with a sperm to try okay. and force the process even further. Okay. So we, that was the only thing that we were candidates for because one of my husband's metrics in his semen analysis was he had 0% motility, like oh, wow. not a single... Okay. There was just no, there was no hope. So yeah, so it's like normal, in a semen analysis, a, a normal count would be like 40 million sperm per milliliter of fluid, and he uh-huh. had less than 2,000. Wow, wow. Uh, and 0% motility. And then morphology, which is like the shape, whether this, each individual cell, sperm cell, is like shaped properly, mm-hmm. which is important for the fertilization process. That's supposed. To, I don't know what the like normal threshold is for that metric, but he had four percent. Only four okay. percent were like shaped normally. So, ICSI was going to be our only choice. Like that, just it is what it is. And then 
it was time by the time we got all of that information it was like he was out the door like hey bye gotta go okay um, yeah so and that was that was our first deployment so we got all of this information i have just like you know this binder full of of test results and mm -hmm. research that we had done and you know references we'd been given and now it was time to shop for an IVF doctor and um, and then he was out the door for right. six months. Gosh. And I just it's so hard there. because it's just like you've already been waiting. It's already taken longer than you wanted it to, and now yeah. you're physically completely unable to. Yeah, it's just impossible. Mm -hmm. at that. Um, and I would say, I mean, not to minimize infertility for anyone. Like it is hard, no matter what your life circumstance is. It's hard to like want something in your soul and not be able to make it happen. Mm -hmm. But definitely, I think in the civilian world, you know, once you get to the point where we were at that time, where we, we had a game plan in the civilian world, you, you move forward with it. You don't right. have your, your job isn't dictating whether or not you can, you can do that. I mean, maybe for financial reasons, you might put it off sure. for a period of time. Although nowadays, like there's so much, there's so many financing options that I would say most people probably just move forward and, and do a payment plan. Right. Um, because, and with, with fertility, time isn't the essence. Like every month that goes by, you're getting less and less fertile. Like statistically, right. your, your chances of conceiving are going down with every passing month. So, sure. so yeah, that was, that was a really tough, I would say I was pretty bitter about Navy life at that sure. point. Sure, understandably, yeah. I remember we had, it's around, it floats around our house. I find it every once in a while, it makes me laugh, but my husband and I are both extremely type A people, and I remember us uh -huh. sitting down. It, I'm laughing because I feel like our timeline is very similar to yours in terms of when we started trying to have kids and everything, but there's this like little note card where we mapped backwards when it made mm -hmm. most sense to conceive, you know, like, okay, and so then we'll conceive in this three-month window, and, you know, and it's just now absolutely hilarious to us that we thought we could plan anything like that, and granted, some people can, some people are blessed to be able to do that, but for us, and then it's like, and years pass, and we move house, you know, all this, all the things happen, and that little note card just travels with us and mocks us, but it's just, it's hard enough, even if you, even if fertility isn't an issue, the number of friends who've gone through pregnancies, births, all that sort of thing with husbands away is, it's just, that's the norm. And it's not easy. Yeah, it's not, it's not. It just takes regular life stresses and amplifies it. Tenfold. Yes, yep. And yeah, like in my, in our case, I was kind of in a place of, being really bitter and blaming the Navy for our problem to begin with, even though right. like I was, I was legitimately like my issues were at least 50% of the problem. It wasn't all, but, but it's nice to have a scapegoat too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you want someone to blame for something. Mm -hmm. And then, so I was mad. I was mad at the Navy for messing him up. Right. And I was mad that they then, you know, once we figured it out, then they took him away. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do anything. So yeah, that was a tough six months, but Luckily, that was the deployment that my fellow, the only other spouse that her husband was gone to. So we were like, we were buddies on that one. And sure. she, she held my hand through all of that. And it was, she was yeah. amazing. 
so then he came I, I took that time to like find a doctor that we really liked built a really great relationship with her while he was gone um going in for like you know monitoring kind of mm-hmm. let's get my we took that time to get my body like super prepared for the process of IVF yeah. and pregnancy and like just focused on keeping me healthy and in a good place so that as soon as he hit the back door we were like we were good to go right and so that was our plan he got home in like May June of that year so still 2015 booked an IVF cycle so I think that cycle was meant to happen in like July and we got all the way to the point of I was I hadn't started the injectable medications yet but I was starting the oral medications that you start first and he came home from work one day it was like I'm getting put on TDY (laughs) and he was gonna miss the egg retrieval day which is like the day that's like the only day that the man needs to be involved (laughs) in the and for support is egg retrieval day like that's the day um, he wasn't going to be there for that so and because of his the severity of his condition like in theory he could have provided a sample early and then they could have frozen it and then just thought it that day and, okay. and tried that because of the severity of his condition and there's an attrition rate with freezing and thawing okay semen. so they just my our doctor just didn't feel comfortable yeah doing that she said you know save let's save your money, let's save your time and your heartache, and let's just postpone. So then we're, so then we postponed again. It, that was going to be in July. So then he was gone for like, I don't know, July, August. It was short. It was like six weeks, maybe. And then came back and did another workup, which a workup meaning like he, the ship goes out to do some kind of exercise and they accompany the ship. It's okay. all in preparation. This was all, we were now in the preparation cycle gearing up for his second deployment. So okay. like, Jeez. I mean, he was like back to back out the door. It was a very high paced, high paced um, tour. So long story short, we, it was, it was December before we were able to actually do our IVF cycle. Okay. So from, from the time of when we found out like this was our plan to when we actually got to execute that plan, it was a full year Jeez. of just waiting. Mm-hmm. And, and blaming the Navy for the fact that a year right. had gone by and they still weren't pregnant. So. Well, and that's something that when we were first having trouble, I kept hearing you need to try for a year before, yes. before they even like consider that there's something wrong, which is just infuriating uh, to me in general. And I don't know, maybe I'm being extremist to say even a little sexist that, hey, if I come in here and I'm telling you something's wrong. Uh it's like I've been in this body for this long I'm not here for fun I'm not just here like I don't want to be here I don't want to talk to you about this I don't want to consider a turkey baster you know these aren't fun things why would anyone cry wolf over something like this so anyway that makes me so angry and then because you add to it our lifestyle where look at you who had you know you were past those preliminary hurdles of figuring out what needed to happen it still took a year to make it actually happen because you have to be in the same place for more than five right. years. and I just think that that's such a disservice to to families to women to say that someone else can dictate at what point you can be treated for something that mm-hmm. is wrong <laughs> you know if it's if for me you know it's well if I'm not okay? having, if I'm not having a cycle, I'm not going to get pregnant. So you're going to make me just not have a cycle for a year. Like what's the, what's this game we're playing? But no, exactly. And like, 
yeah, the, I, I guess the traditional advice is to, if you have no pre-existing conditions mm-hmm. that would indicate infertility, you know, to try, like you said, for a full year, like mm-hmm. in the military, by the time you get, you're in the same place at the right time, you know, right. you only have five days out of the whole month, really, that you're, that you're fertile. So if by the time you're in the same place for those four or five days for 12 months, like that's, you know, four years have gone by. Yeah, absolutely. And how many doctors you've been through and how many states you've lived in and all that nonsense. And that was, so I didn't mention, but we chose to pay out of pocket and go with a civilian doctor for our IVF because, um, so TRICARE will cover IVF if you go through a military hospital. I think only four or five of the military hospitals throughout the country offer fertility care and IVF. Tripler was on, on Oahu in Hawaii, happened to be one of those places. So in theory, we could have gone through Tripler, but their wait list at that time to get on the calendar to even do an IVF cycle was 18 months. Okay. By this point, we had already been in Hawaii for almost 18 months. So there was the chance, if we got on that wait list, yeah. you know, there was the chance that we had orders to get off the island before we ever came up for our cycle. So right, right. it was like, okay, so we have the option to get it for a lot cheaper, right? You still have to pay for your injectable medication. So it's not fully mm-hmm. free. They cover like all of the facility fees and doctor's fees and all of that. So it's, it's much less expensive, mm-hmm. but, um, but you're putting it off, you know, 18 months right. and it's just, it's more waiting. And right. so right. we were blessed to be in the place that we could pay for it out of pocket. It was a small fortune, but we could do it. Um, and we could do it on our timing. Right. So, well, I mean, on our timing around his deployment schedules. Yes. Right. <laughs> as much <laughs> as anything yeah. can be. Yeah. Right. So yeah, that was the choice we made and, and no regrets on that whatsoever. Like if, if ever there's a time to not try and save money, it's when you're, you know, conceiving your, your children. Mm-hmm. I, I would say they're worth the splurge. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Otherwise, in your life, you can, you can save costs. But um, it was, that was a very, um, just, it was a tough year for me. I dealt with a lot of like, just anger sure. and being bitter at the job and the life. And, mm-hmm. and just feeling, you know, I would imagine, so out of control, just yeah. really, you're a subject to, you know, not only your own bodies and what's going on there and then the Navy and your doctors and just things and I know for me things that for some people just happen literally happen overnight yeah and then yeah. it's years worth of struggle to have something that some people come so easily to some people is, yeah or even accidentally <laughs> right exactly yeah that's and I agree that was something that I lamented where it's like there are people who aren't even trying to do this and we're trying everything, you know, and just yeah. that being such a yeah. frustration. And it, and it's, there's no point in wallowing in that because it's not logic. It's not, you can argue it's science, but it's, it's basically magic. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, it's a miracle yeah. is what it is. And so it's, it's not something that you can make sense of, but I certainly know I tried. And th- in the same way I, I tried, I found Think, try to find things to be mad at or you, you run the gamut of emotions mm-hmm. yeah it is it's so emotional and then 
like I said, emo infertility is emotional regardless of your life circumstance. Deployments are super stressful and emotional regardless mm -hmm. of your circumstance at home. But to, to combine those two things, mm -hmm. it's a lot. Sure. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That was tough. But by the time we finally got to our cycle from then on, it was relatively smooth sailing. So we were super blessed in that respect. We that first cycle we did was, it was successful. We conceived, we only wound up with one embryo actually from, okay. from that. So they retrieve your eggs, they fertilize them. You get a call like 24 hours later to tell you how many of them actually fertilized because mm -hmm. just because they, you know, just because they inject each egg with a sperm doesn't mean that it's going to actually take. So we got that call. I think they retrieved like I want to say 22, okay. 20 or 22 eggs from me, which is really high. Yeah. So we were really excited about that. The, the goal of always the goal with IVF is to get enough embryos that you can, you know, transfer one, freeze the rest. And then for subsequent children, you don't have to go through this whole process all right. over again. You, you know, pop them in one at a time or, or two <laughs> at a time, two at a time if you're crazy. Right. Uh, so yes, yeah, so called 24 hours later and only 10 fertilized. Okay. So that was a pretty hot, we were like, oh, okay. And then you get another call on like day three after that to tell you how many embryos you have. So they've, they've continued to mm -hmm. develop basically cells are dividing and that on day three, we had four. Okay. So we went down to four. And so that was like, okay, you know, getting a little low. Right. And then day five was freeze day and they called and we were down to one. Wow. We had one embryo left, and so they froze it. Well, they did like the genetic testing on it, and then they froze it. So we we found out that it was a boy, okay. a boy embryo, wow. and he was in the freezer. And he was our <laughs> that was the one. He had all the right the right number of chromosomes and everything. But do a visual grading based on just like how it looks, if it's you know symmetrical and. I don't know. The embryologist can look at an embryo and kind of grade it. Okay. I don't remember what the grading was, but it wasn't great. It was like, okay. Okay. Our doctor gave us like a 30 to 50% chance of the transfer being successful. Mm. Okay. So they, we, we were going to do it, but whether or not it resulted in a viable pregnancy, 30 to 50% odds mm -hmm. that that was going to be the case. So that was a little stressful. Yeah. Because you're like, you know, obviously you want to be pregnant and you want to have the baby, but you've also invested like right. the down payment of the house right. into right. this one little embryo. So there's a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. And so transfer day came around. My husband was uh, gone, but he was, he was TDY in Nevada. He was able to FaceTime. So he, like the nurse held my phone and he FaceTimed for... Uh -huh. The embryo transfer. <laughs> and actually, for our second baby, we did we did all this all over again here in Jacksonville for our second, and he was also gone for the transfer for our second baby. So I've been pregnant twice now, and both times that I was got pregnant, like he wasn't even in the state. <laughs> he was nowhere to be found. Oh, that's great. Like I just was got pregnant on my own. Talk about that is like the ultimate military spouse. Listen, forget <laughs> it. Dude, I don't even need you here. I'll just do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> done your part I'll just go right yeah yeah so we did the transfer and two weeks later I tested and I was pregnant 
and so that was just like the best the best feeling oh gosh um, yeah what a miracle baby man those are some odds stacked against him that's amazing it was and he I mean he's so spunky and like he's been such a challenge since the day he was born so it, it's no to me that he was like the embryo that right. lasted <laughs> forced in nature but yeah so we found out I was pregnant Clay left on his deployment like pretty immediately thereafter I was only like six weeks along when he okay went off to sea but when our guys are deployed on the ship there's no internet they can't access the internet except for on like a ship desktop computer that they share okay. with maybe like five or six other people so there's no FaceTime. There's no voice calling. You have an, you can communicate with them by email. They get like an email wow. associated with that ship that they can check. But every once in a while, the ship turns off, depending on what they're doing at that time, they'll just shut down all communication okay. or OPSEC, operation, okay. op, operational security. <laughs> Do y'all okay. say that too? Yes. Um, yes. So for, you know, at random times, they'll just, without warning, without without any warning, they'll just shut down the email system. So there were periods there where I'd have to sit down and type out an email. You know, I'd go to the doctor and maybe, you know, she said it might be miscarrying. So I have to go home and type out an email like, hi, you might get this three weeks from now, but I might not be pregnant by then. So mm -hmm. that was tough. Oh my gosh. But, you know, I, I stayed pregnant and he was, mm -hmm. the baby was fine. It, it all worked out. Henry was born in October and we PCS'd in December. Okay. When he was eight weeks old here and we were here for about a year before we were ready to do it all over again. And, okay. and we did um, here in Jacksonville and, and I got pregnant again with our second baby. And then we wound up with two embryos extra. Okay. Have a boy and a girl left. They say they live in their they live in their apartment here in downtown Jacksonville. <laughs> so in the house and then knew that we pay rent on their very expensive little apartment. It's very well air conditioned. <laughs> no, thank you so much for sharing that because that that whole process is is totally foreign to me and absolutely fascinating. So I'm so happy that it after all that that it ended in success for you is is fantastic. Yeah. Which I will say, like I said, we are, we are so blessed. I know so many women who have gone through the whole thing and wind up with nothing at the end. Right. Of, I mean, they they have the money. It's the blood, sweat, and tears. It's mm -hmm. they go through you know five, six, seven rounds of IVF right. before they finally you know move on and, yeah. and try something else or just don't try anything at all and just make peace with with their life at that point. So sure. we. We are super, super blessed. Mm -hmm. We would love for the other two embryos to result in baby pregnancies and babies and have a family of six, mm -hmm. which sounds a lot. But, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's, and we'll transfer them. I'll probably actually do another transfer here in a couple months before we get orders because we can't take them with us or we're not going to. Gotcha. Um, okay. you, can, you can transport embryos frozen, but it's not proof like there's always okay. the risk it's expensive mm -hmm. and then there's always the risk that they thaw a little sure. bit in transport and I know two two close friends actually who have tried that and their embryos died in oh, the transfer process oh. which would just be would be devastating absolutely so. right and because then you can just always fly back to have that right okay yeah, yeah. 
know, no guarantee that those, like I said, turn into babies. So we might be done at two. We might have four. Yeah. We might, you know, who knows? We have the sweetest little boys. Like if, if these two are all we, all we get, we're so happy. Mm-hmm. With them. They are precious. Oh. And having been through all of that, can you tell me what advice you would have for, and I know that this is different for everyone. I want to disclaim that because I know there are things that are hard for one person who's going through infertility to hear that just absolutely don't phase another. But through your experience and from your perspective, what advice do you have for friends who are walking with someone who's going through infertility? For friends who are support, like if you're not the one that's going through it, if you're a support person, honestly, the best advice is sometimes to just not say anything, mm-hmm. <laughs> which like, it's one of the, and I feel like this is the same for, infertility is very similar to grief in yeah. that there's almost nothing that you as, as an outside person, there's almost nothing you can say to make it better or easier. And more than likely, whatever you're going to say is going to hurt. Mm-hmm. the person unless you have also been through a very similar experience and and your friend or loved one is asking you for advice or for your personal experience mm-hmm. um, that's that's different but if you're just trying to if you fe- just feel like you have to say something and so you say something well-intentioned more than often it, it's going to cut a little bit the word just relax like oh mm-hmm. okay <laughs> Sure. And the thing that I want to underscore about that, because that is something we have heard many times, perhaps as two people who aren't the best at relaxing, but that's not important. We, (laughs) when someone says to relax, I think what people need to recognize is that what you're implying is that it's therefore our fault, that if we are keeping this from ourselves, that we're doing this to ourselves. And that's, I know not what is meant, but that's what that's what you're saying. That's what it means to tell someone to relax is to say, if you do this thing, then you'll be pregnant. Then things would be different. And that's the last thing someone needs to hear is that because, because you can pretty much bet that we're doing everything in our power. We're trying all the things. Yeah. And the idea and that, that and that's the one that we didn't think of, or that that's the one thing we need right. to do is just a little maddening. Yeah. Or, and, and just any, you know, there's the, there's the just relax. There's, oh, my friend, my so-and-so tried this. And maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you try, I guarantee you that unless you are a reproductive endocrinologist, <laughs> there is nothing that you could suggest to your friend that he, that she hasn't already researched or heard about from her doctor or tried and it didn't yeah. work. Or like the advice should be coming from your doctor mm-hmm. and your friends are there, just there to hear you gripe about it. And all you have to say as a support person is, gosh, this really sucks for you. You don't deserve this. You deserve a baby. This is hard for you. Here, enjoy this glass of wine. Have some chocolate. <laughs> right. Just, mm-hmm. just be present. Be willing to listen. Because half the time we just want to dump on someone and vent. We're not asking you for, for answers or advice. We just want someone to hear it. Because it put, infertility puts a strain on a marriage, even the strongest of marriages. You can't, your spouse can't be the one that you're venting to constantly, especially in our case when my husband was a contributing factor. I, yeah. I didn't want to dump all of my heartache onto him because the last thing I want him to feel is at fault or even, yeah. even partially at fault, you know, and he knew, he knew how hard it was. Like mm-hmm. I didn't need to say that to him, and, but I still needed, you know, someone to vent to. So that's where, that's where support people come in is just someone to listen 
and that's not your husband. Yeah, you're right. It's just, just a safe space. Just a, it's so much more about having somewhere to vent than it is. No, none of us, if we thought our friends had answers, then we would be asking a lot more questions. Yeah. And if, and if all it took was, you know, to just relax and then people wouldn't be spending tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. You know, we'd just be taking a vacation. Yeah. In school, learning how to treat people with these issues, if all it took was to just relax. Or um, we heard several times, and I'm sure, I mean, I know that you are an adoptive mom, but when people mm-hmm. say, oh, don't worry, you can just adopt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is like, not. Yeah, there is an adoptive mom. That's that's not okay to say because that is not just adopting does not exist. Adoption is its own unique path, its own decision, something that's only right for certain families, and its own huge undertaking. And that's so that's so flippant to say, whether it's something that someone wants to do eventually or not, because even for us we did always know we wanted to adopt, but it's still not right. anyone else's place to suggest that or offer a solution to that. Yeah. And, and like you, like you knew you were called to adopt for, mm-hmm. you know, you knew beforehand and that's wonderful. But when you're, when you're, when adoption is suggested as an alternative to assisted reproduction, like when it's coming from a place of infertility, that couple has to grieve basically yes. the death of their biological children. It's a debt. You have to grieve the loss of what could have been mm-hmm. before you can even consider adoption. And that's a huge thing to put on a couple when you suggest adoption. And, and then that's, that's on top of that. True. That's something that we went through. I, I just recall, again, knowing we wanted to adopt, nonetheless, we, we always knew we wanted to adopt our, we didn't initially intend to adopt first, largely because of the expense and the, you know, like, let's be frank, it's easier to have a biological child logistically and financially speaking. If you can biologically have a child unassisted, that's just the easiest path, right? And so we felt like, okay, let's maybe figure out what the heck it even means to be a parent and then look at adoption. For us, Mm -hmm. that ended up not being what, you know, God's plan was. But with that said, yeah, there's so many emotions that that go into making a decision like that. And it's such a process. And we did end up uh, conceiving our second daughter biologically after adopting, but that was absolutely part of the process when we, when we pursued adoption was recognizing that perhaps we weren't going to ever have a child biologically. And as open as we were to adoption, those are just two different experiences. And we did have to mourn the loss the likely loss of one of those experiences and adoption is beautiful and I wish adoption for anyone who has that in their heart because it's such a blessing but it's it's just a different thing it's a different experience you end up with the same result you end up with a child that you love unconditionally but it is entirely different process you mourn Maybe I'm never going to feel a baby kick. Maybe I'm never going to feel, you know, what is labor? Those are, those are things that you grow up as a woman always thinking you're going to experience because for so many people do. And so that is such a process. And yes, adoption does ultimately bring you to the same goal of a child that you 
love and raise and care for, which is beautiful, but that does not mean that there are things that you don't miss, things that you aren't mourning and not experiencing. And certain people just aren't called to do so. And that is entirely fine. And, and just the idea that those are interchangeable, I think is frustrating because they're just totally separate paths. Just from a place of very, I feel like very fertile privilege to suggest that. that I've heard that fertile privilege. (laughs) Fertile privilege. Yes. It's a thing. Yes. Or I've heard this. Oh, well, just adopt you know you could adopt and then I know so and so adopted and then they got pregnant with their daughter with their child mm-hmm. after they adopt as mm-hmm. if the adoptive baby is just another step or a means that. to your biological which is yeah. so so unfair to that child the adoptive child it's yeah. just that yeah I'm sure as an adoptive mom that's just blood boiling for you it is it's absolutely blood yeah. boiling it 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 makes me sick it, it makes me it brings me nearly to tears at the because you're right people say that all the time people say see I knew I knew when you adopted then you'd get pregnant like Uh, like you said as though as though that were well maybe we'll adopt and then get like it's just no those are both my children who I who came to our family in different ways both in exactly the way they were supposed to come to our family and the idea that by getting pregnant then we got what we what it's like it hurts me to even say that oh then you got what you really wanted or then you then you got yes. the the end result or something right is yeah. just infuriating baby. because because maybe you got your baby like oh yes right oh gosh yeah or oh now you have one of your own like those types of terms oh, are yeah. in there and they roll off the tongue so easily for people they're yeah. and people will just because we, you know, my daughter's mixed race, so we're very clearly an adoptive family. And the things people just feel like they can share or the, the freeness with which people speak sometimes is just absolutely maddening because it's, it's just, they're so off so frequently. And the choice to adapt for us was absolutely a calling on our hearts, something that we wanted to do for, long before we were married, we discussed adoption. That was always, a, we always saw that for our family. And regardless, even if there are people who come to adoption by way of infertility, which is how we came to adoption in the timeline that we did, but right. there are also plenty of people, like you said, who either choose IVF, choose to just not have children for whom adoption is not the right choice. And adoption right. adoption is for us. Adoption is for our family. Adoption is how we became parents and how we have one of our two incredible daughters. And just the idea that there is any difference in how we view them is, and the fact that people don't recognize how flippantly they are basically suggesting that. Right. Just, I apologize, I'm totally on a soapbox about this right now, but. I'm so so happy to talk to someone who like you, like you have personal experience with it because Mm -hmm. it, I, I've heard these things and like we, we are not adoptive parents, so it Mm -hmm. doesn't strike me in the same way. Like I don't have Mm -hmm. that guttural but I hear people say, and I'm like, you, I, you don't know what you're saying. Right. You right. know how hurtful that can be. Mm-hmm. And I like, oftentimes it's well intent. People think they're helping or being encouraging. People yes. think they're being encouraging or giving you hope. And it's like, you are killing me. Yes. Yes. And that's where I guess, you know, the biggest takeaway, because it's been said to me so many times, if anyone can, anyone listening 
who knows someone who is an adoptive parent who has then conceived a biological child stop saying anything along the lines of then I, I knew that would happen or you just had to stop thinking about it or all these different like oh look at what this that adoption mm -hmm. was almost a means to this biological end is infuriating these are different choices these are different paths these are not all it's not just about having a heartbeat in your home you know there's a process to that and there are ways that that should come to be for each family anyway and so and again it all boils down to like just stop just don't give advice yes just, right exactly at the end of the day just say, just give a hug and, just to say nothing Okay, sure. well, I know that we're we're getting tight on time because I apologize, but yeah. no, I'm on my okay. soapbox and I'm taking up your time. So I do want to oh, just yeah. pop to our, our kind of our fun stuff at the end here. One of which, I know you've kind of alluded to one, but um, if there's a, tell me about a military spouse that changed you. Um, yeah, so I, I mentioned Laura already. She's like, she's not in any way old enough to be my mom but she's like my navy mom she uh -huh. if there's ever if I ever need like advice about anything she's the person that I would call or text and I actually haven't talked to her in too long she gave me like such a phenomenal example of what I wanted to be and what I thought was just a good navy spouse she was like the model for me and just our just our like I that our little ohana in Hawaii in general, like another two, well, two, one of them is far away right now, which I miss, but specifically one of those women from Hawaii is here in Jacksonville too. And our boys are very close to the same age. Her oldest is a year older than Henry. And then her baby is just six weeks older than Connor, my baby. Mm -hmm. So we're just in it together. Sure. And she, she's my person and she's the type of person that like, I can call her or just go over to her house and divulge my deepest, darkest mom fails. And she is so not, she's like, yeah, me too. Sure, I, I yeah. Just, you know, <laughs> she's just that person for me. So it's great. And she's also the person, um, you know, it can be really hard to not just gripe to your husband all the time about how hard his job makes your life, sure. which is like, mm -hmm. past, it's, hard to not do that it it but it does such it, the only thing is it does a disservice to your marriage it just drives a wedge between you because yes. he has no choice your husband has no choice about his hours about whether he's flying you know but instead of complaining to him about that kind of stuff Kelly <laughs> is my right. my stand-in you know we mm -hmm. can commiserate on that kind of thing and it just it, it eases the burden on the marriage yes that's so true someone that's outside so true. the marriage to mm -hmm. So, I, so yes, those are, those are my people. Okay, so the next ones are just kind of rapid fire. First one, favorite place you've ever lived? It just sounds so boring, but Houston. Okay, that's not boring. <laughs> only, because, only because that's where my family is, and I, I think because I've been away for so long, and I'm extremely close with my family, that, yeah. like, family over anything, I would live anywhere. I would live in, like, the armpit of the earth if it meant that I was, yeah. like, close yeah. to my siblings and my parents, so. Uh -huh. That being said, the most beautiful place was obviously Hawaii. Like that was, we're never going to top that. Sure. That was incredible. First place you want to travel after COVID? Europe. I mean, hopefully we're stationed there. Sure. Um, but yeah, I'm like, I'm currently daydreaming about all of the little like 
some getaways we're going to get to do. Um, the base there is in Rota, Spain, which is just oh. like a very short ferry ride away from Morocco, which yeah. I like, oh, I would be drooling to go like hop on a ferry and ride over to Morocco and oh, yeah. see Casablanca and all, I don't know. It's just, so yes, anywhere and everywhere around Europe, that's on our list. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite way to waste time? <laughs> um, Pre-kids or post-kids? <laughs> Both. Pre-kids, I would have said, like, I don't know, like, do yoga or something. And now, honestly, I find myself, like, standing in the pantry eating croutons in silence. <laughs> yeah. Like, are so yeah. low. Yeah. Oh. Minus scoops of peanut butter hiding in the pantry taking a scoop <laughs> of peanut butter. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I guess, like, I don't know, standing still, staring off into space, um, <laughs> silence quiet yes I get that <laughs> scrolling through my scrolling I like I you know sleep when the babies sleep or whatever but like I find myself just aimlessly scrolling through my phone just because I can because when I when they're awake you can't I can't have it near me it's like right so, so scrolling true. through my phone will mm -hmm. be the most wasteful because yeah. at least like eating croutons in the pantry like sometimes that's all the food I get so <laughs> that's true that's productive that's, like, that's just a pit stop yeah right biggest challenge of being a military staff? For me personally, it's the lack of control over every mm -hmm. aspect of my life. I am a, I'm like you kind of type A, I'm, I'm a control freak. I like mm -hmm. to have a handle on everything and it's taken me, I mean, we're going on seven years of it that we've been married now, longer than that, just since we've been dating, but it's taken me, like I would still, I'm still not there in terms of like not feeling anger or mm -hmm. resentment him and his job for interfering with our lives it's kind of a like a rotten trick that they do where these guys in the military are they're just these like type a sirens and they lure us in with their organization and their just tightly woundness and then we get into this military spouse life where we have no control and our type yeah. a skills are just completely wasted on flying by the seat of our pants. <laughs> so last one is your favorite thing about being a mill spouse. For us, it's the places we get to live. Mm -hmm. We Navy specifically, I mean, we get, we get pretty nice duty stations. It's always going to be on the coast, right. pretty much. There's always a beach or, you know, it's nice. And also the people we've met, the, like you said, the camaraderie, you meet some really cool people. Yeah. Well, that is it. We did it. Thank Jenna again so much for being willing to share. And thanks to Clay as well for letting us share his story. What a journey they had and what strong and resilient people they are. Next week, we'll dive a bit into the process of adoption. And I will once again try to keep it under an hour and I will probably fail. So get ready. Uh, stay up to date with us by following us on social media at the American Mill Spouse, and we'll talk to you next week.